I'm here with Caroline Crabble. Yep. Hi, Hutch. Hi. Um, Caroline Crabble grew up in Seattle, USA, and came to London as a teenager. As she describes, just too late to realise her punk dreams. She discovered saxophone and expressed her love for it via indie music and street performance. Right. Hi, Caroline. So um, how did you first start? You play alto sax or all the saxes? Um, I play E-flat saxes, really. I used to play the baritone a lot more, but now as my time is you know there are huge demands on my time so I really try and stick to just the alto and make the most I can of that and so when did you actually start to play I started when I came to London when I was 17 Um, before that I hadn't had that much exposure to music until maybe you know maybe a year and a half before when I suddenly realized that it was possible to listen to music, basically, and and I listened to all kinds of stuff on the radio, and then I discovered punk, which had just started in Seattle. This is like, you know, right at the end of the 70s, a couple of years after it began here, or three or four years even. And um, I was just totally blown away by it, not necessarily by the music, but by the, the you know the the energy and the feeling that there was something anarchic about it, and um, that it meant freedom, that it meant freedom to to do to make art without having to have a certificate, you know, giving you permission to do so. Right. Yeah. Um, so and then at the time I lived in Seattle, and in my mind I thought I have to get out, I have to go somewhere bigger, more exciting, and it was like, should I go to New York? No, I'll go to London, because it seemed like, you know, the the place that where people were doing these kinds of things, you know. Okay, so you arrived in London, and so, so where did finding the <laughs> saxophone at that okay, point? Okay, I arrived in London, and uh, lived in various, so from the beginning, of you know of being an independent person and wanting to be an artist the, the 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 conundrum is how to survive how to keep a roof over your head and feed yourself without compromising your work so finding a cheap place to live so um i through friends found um, what they used to call short life housing. You probably remember that when a, a housing association, they have a house that's in terrible condition so they can't legitimately rent it out. But they let uh, people like me move in there on the basis that as soon as they want to, they can kick you out. But in the meantime, you kind of keep it going. And it was with two people who were musicians. I didn't know them, you know, it was just like, okay, you've been allocated this place, me and a friend of mine, and these two musicians who were in a group called the Swell Maps. You may remember them. (laughs) No, I don't know. Oh, they were great, the Swell Maps from Birmingham. They were on Rough Trade, so it was like, oh my gosh, a real band. And, you know, I didn't know their music at the time. I was like, oh, you know, Rough Trade, great label and so on. And this was like 19, uh, I think late, in, in the autumn of 79. And I was 17. And one of the, well, the Swell Maps had just been given an advance by this by their label. It was like a few hundred pounds, but it seemed like a lot of money. And so they'd gone out and bought loads of musical 
equipment and instruments, one of the things they bought was a saxophone. So they moved into this house, and I moved into this house, and the guy who was in the room upstairs had a saxophone, and he never played it. He wasn't. He was a guitarist. He'd bought it because he'd had the money, but you know, I don't think he played it very much. So I, th- I was like, oh God, that's really pretty. You know. <laughs> and was that an alto? Yeah. 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 Okay. It was um, German or Chinese. I can't remember. A Jupiter, whatever that is. Anyway, I was immediately, you know, I thought, oh, I'll try it. It was an atmosphere where people were always making music, trying things out, making noises. Oh, I'll give it a try. And I, oh, it sounds so great. And then the guy downstairs, I mean, both of these guys were really into all different kinds of music, but the guy downstairs especially. And so he used to play all different things like, you know, American music that I myself might have heard but didn't really know. And um, I remember that that's where I first heard the Velvet Underground and I first heard a lot of black music. And so, and I first heard Ornette Coleman and obviously okay. that and, and the saxophone just, just seemed to make suddenly, you know, this is so cool. And that was how I started. So... The Ornette Coleman, and that is already a little bit experimental, maybe. Or right. Um, yes. So from there, so you started playing the saxophone. What kind of stuff were you actually playing? Well, at that time, I was just playing by myself and making noises, basically working out the fingerings, doing things on my own, really. And then there was something. I mean, I was making films with my friend that I was living with. And um, we made a film, and we needed sounds for this film. So I ended up creating the soundtrack, but not really using the saxophone, using tape loops and, you know, noises and, and things. And it was such a fascinating experience. That was what actually made me think that it's possible to, for someone like me, who had, I had absolutely no background in music at all. I mean, I was, I was, you know, in a state of complete ignorance about music. It was possible, nevertheless, to make sounds and and put them together in a way that worked for me, and then other people seemed to think worked, you know. And so I was like, okay, there's something attractive about this. And then there was a sort of maybe like what some time passed. And there was a sort of a big upheaval. I had the job as a projectionist because I was interested in film. And I walked out of the job. I just I had a, a row with the, the manager of the place where I worked. And I just said, forget it, I'm leaving, you know. And I, I thought, well, why not travel? So I went to Paris. And there, there was no way of supporting myself. So I was okay, I'll play the saxophone and, and, you know, so I started busking then in Paris and and kept myself alive for the next sort of, I don't know, eight to ten years, probably not uniquely from busking, but certainly there were long stretches where busking was my only source of income. So what, you mentioned street performance, is that yeah. part of the whole thing? Yeah. That's really interesting. And from a basis of knowing like two two pieces. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> that I still play. I still busk, and I still sometimes play those two pieces. What are the two pieces? Uh, one was Stormy Weather, <laughs> <laughs> and one was Goodbye Pork Pie Hat by Charles Mingus. That's amazing. So, the, so from there, um, you're playing and performing. How did you come back to London, maybe, and start getting into um, playing with different people? Or well, I started getting into playing with people because people would come up and talk to me in the in the metro and say, <laughs> "Want to have a play?" and um, Eventually, I just thought that Paris is nice, but it wasn't really the place for me. It wasn't, um, there was nothing, musically, it was almost like stepping into the past compared to to the sort of really multifarious and exciting scene there was in London, in Paris. It was still very academic very much you know you you had to know your stuff and prove with the you know you had to have some authority declare that you knew your stuff before you could even attempt to think of doing anything with music so I just you know as I hadn't that seal of approval I I felt you know and also the the people that were in Paris who were French or native to Paris were not as you know, not necessarily the people I, I felt I could play with. Okay. And so I, I, did, I came back initially to Manchester and in fact stayed in Manchester with someone who I'd met in Paris and played with in Paris and we played together and then moved back to London. God, this is like, the, it's like some <laughs> kind of strange confessional life story. But that's no, amazing because to, to where, yeah, to, so you arrive in London and, and is there a scene... Uh, or you start busking, or I, well, I was busking all along. Right, I mean, okay. in Liverpool and Manchester as well, which was blinking cold. <laughs> um, and back to London, still busking, doing a little bit of projectionist work off and on. And um, I mean, the main thing that permitted me to keep going all these years between arriving in London in 1979 and 1993, when I was finally able to get a flat was that I was living in squats most of the time. So, I don't know, you've probably experienced that yourself, no? Just because in order to keep working as an artist, you have to keep your overheads right down, you know, especially in London. And, and at that time, it was possible to to squat. It's much more difficult now. And was, sorry, and was that part, and were the people, were there other musicians? Was that part? Yes, very often. Not, I mean, I, there was an architect. The first, <laughs> first place I squatted after coming back, I was actually on my own, which was in a way blissful, but it hadn't any electricity right. <laughs> or gas. It had water, but only cold water. Um, and then I lived with an architect. I mean, you know, shared a, a squat with an architect and musicians, artists, you know, people who were doing interesting things but didn't have any money. And and in terms of improvised music and experimental music, you've played with a lot of people, but at that time, was there any, did you meet anyone in particular who was kind of inspiring at the beginning in terms of 
I think the person, two people made a lot of difference to me at that time. Um, one of them was John Stevens, who was running workshops in Stockwell. And I was in Brixton, so not far away. And, you know, sort of going to different workshops and thinking, oh, well, maybe I can learn something from this, you know. And John Stevens has had just this most amazing approach, which he formalized in a book called Search and Reflect, which is like a, an amazing, wonderful book, you know. Um, and it was just, it wasn't so much he teaches one how to play, it's just he, it gives one permission and, and it, to, to improvise and to to look upon it as more than just a random noise making or, um, you know, error free. You know, some people think that improvising means you never make a mistake. And with John Stevens, you know, you, you, you definitely know that it's not just about finding a way of making music where your your insecurity is kind of sheltered because you're never going to make a mistake. It's it's about really rigorous listening, above all, I think. And then the other person who probably inspired me, per, well, definitely even more than that, was Maggie Nichols. Okay, who, how did you meet her? I can't remember <laughs> how I met her. Okay. <laughs> but uh, she was... She had been an associate of John Stevens and a lot of the great, the first, not the first generation perhaps, but the early, previous generations of improvisers. And she was in and around London doing lots of things. And Was that the gathering? Well, I was, I did go to the gathering, but I think that was later. I just remember going to her concerts and asking her once for some lessons and her, you know, a number of us, there may be five or six of us who got together and, and would give her some money and she would just work with us. Um, and she was just, she's really the thing that's most inspiring is to hear her improvise because she's such a consummate improviser. She's so um, original and she has such great access to a lot of you know, you, you can tell she's not doing the same thing again. She's finding new things or new ways every time she sings, and that's so inspiring. That's and she's also very welcoming, you know, she's she's a great person. So those two were the f- maybe the first inspiration and experience. Yeah. And then since then, there have been other collaborations, which when you think about it now, we're going to listen to... Um, a couple of pieces, but um, just before we do, are there, is there anything that comes to mind that, in terms of collaborations where you've worked with someone? Well, at that time I worked with a group, but then it fell apart, and then so when the group fell apart, I was left with a lot of music ideas, and I decided to do to work on my own since there was no group anymore. So I spent two or three years, I devised, you know, a a sort of a framework for a solo performance that would be long enough to sort of sustain a concert or whatever, 45 minutes or so. And um, I worked on that for maybe three years and um, toured hugely, incredibly extensively with that. 
In in this country? In, in England, in Europe, and in the States, and in Canada. So, you know, doing huge number of small gigs, medium-sized gigs, festivals, but, you know, and it involved, as it was like, okay, it involved like big sheets of newspaper and singing and movement and kind of rolling around on the floor and um, fake blood. That was good, the fake blood and sort of... Um, Where did that come in? <laughs> oh, well, you know, on the newspaper you would see that before you saw the performer, you would see there was a saxophone and then it was my baritone sax set up in front of this big sheet of newspaper like stuck together right that would be like from the floor to the ceiling to the walls and just the mouthpiece of the sax would be poking through to the other side so the audience wouldn't see okay me okay. and then I would great break my way through to it and splatter thing blood around the place in fact my baritone sax has still got bits of fake blood on it so. Amazing. yeah and that performance was called now we are one two so when you said you wanted to talk to me, I actually listened back because eventually oh, I made a CD of it <sighs> sometime, 1997, I think that was. And the CD was like trying to recapture, obviously I couldn't put the fake blood actually in the CD, but trying to recapture the sort of some aspects of the performance like there's a lot of noises of crumpling paper and I listened back to it for the first time in like decades this morning and thought oh yeah oh it's not that bad oh well I would have loved to have heard that (laughs) well would you like to I've got it with me okay great let's let's take a break and listen to that
extract of organ grinding from Caroline Crabble's Now We Are One Two. So you're listening to that. <laughs> what kind of memories did you have or of that time? Well just then I was thinking, ah, that wasn't bad. I, I remember being able to do that. And I don't know, without working on it, I don't think I could do that anymore. I was trying to do three things at the same time, you know. It's incredible. Like uh, quiet words and loud words and saxophone notes it sounds like a lot of different people that's all me it's all it's all done live <laughs> right has, has has it changed uh, how how is it different perhaps to listening to that now well I think that 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 was like 
you know, it's a product of several years of playing, not only of playing solo, but really of working on that, that sequence of pieces. And it was kind of, it was like one makes a conscious decision. I suppose perhaps if you were gonna, if you were to write a play, perhaps it would be a bit like that. I remember deciding to do it and then going to the community center next to my flat that I had at the time and, you know, going like, you know, maybe most days and spending a couple of hours in there thinking, oh, how's it going to go? Wow. And like lying on the floor and in the fetal position, kind of just <laughs> thinking, you know, what's going to happen? How does, what happens next? And what does that go there? Or, you know, so it was kind of through composed, even though within the composition there was space for improvising but at, at that time I didn't feel able to sustain 45 minutes of improvising it felt too scary really and um, whether alone or with someone it was still something kind of new and intimidating you know so but part of the Part of doing Now We Are One Two was, you know, feeling the urge to do that specific thing. And part of it was also perhaps not having the the uh, the wherewithal to do otherwise. Right. <laughs> so subsequent to that, after this long period of doing that solo thing, along with playing with other people here and there, but never in that, that sort of focused way, and I'd been concentrating so much on the saxophone, you know, and on the body, you know. Um, I, th I felt like the only thing that seemed right to commit to putting a huge amount of work into after that would be to do something involving the saxophone and the body, but with a whole bunch of people okay. instead of just me. So I went in search of a large number of other saxophone players who would be willing to work with me and to learn to do some of the things that I'd learned to do, notably singing and playing in alternation, which meant, well, I wanted people like me, you know, not just physically able to make their voices sound the way my voice sounds more or less, but, you know, with a similar experience to mine. So it, I sought out up to 21 other women who played the saxophone okay. and formed um, this group called Mass Producers. And we, we did ended up doing four pieces for large numbers of saxophones and voice. And they were composed pieces by, yes, by you? Yes, they oh, were was all completely composed, okay. really. There were maybe fragments of improvisation especially in number one, but essentially composed again. And, um, and those influences you mentioned before, like Maggie Nichols and even going back further mm. to the punk stuff or was any of that? I think you can hear that yeah. in what you've just yes. heard. <laughs> you can. Well, I can, yes, definitely. I think mass producers... In some ways, it was such a large and unwieldy thing, and I had to. I had spent a couple of years raising money because I I didn't think that with the music I was going to write, uh, 
I could just ask people to pop in and toss it off in their spare time. You know, I had I paid people to rehearse. Right. I paid for the rehearsal space. I paid people for, for performances. So I had to raise quite a lot of money. And in a way, the fact that it was that it was quite demanding and that there were always, uh, you know, there were always financial constraints meant that perhaps we were never able to quite bring it as far as it could have gone had those financial constraints not existed. Because it was such a Because big, it, it was, um, we first, for a start, I asked people to memorize right. the pieces because when we played, we didn't just play like 20 people standing on a stage. We played in a circle around the audience or in a line through the audience or moving around the space because part of the intention was to make music that was exclusively acoustic, that would never be uh, reproducible through technology. Sorry, Sorry about that. Woo. Hello. <laughs> right, so it was... So we moved around, right. we, tried, we surrounded people with music, we made the music move as well by passing it between the musicians and so on. And what kind of spaces did, did you? Well, um, the ones I remember, we played in a, the Blue Coat in Liverpool, we played in the Round Chapel in Hackney, which was perfect for us because it's a chapel that's round. <laughs> so yes. we were able to do it in a circle. You know, we played at Conway Hall, um, those kinds of biggish spaces that, um, that we could do that moving around thing in, you know. And so it was never recorded? It was. I did make a CD. Of, we, we recorded it at Gateway, which is a studio that no longer exists, but it, it, it was part of the Kingston University, and it's a huge space. So it was big like a concert hall, and it's all, it's all wood-paneled, and we used a sound field mic, which has got four capsules, like in a sort of cross, and... Um, you know, it's made for capturing a three-dimensional sound. And... I'd love to hit... Well, I've got some of that, okay. if you want to hear. <laughs> Just yeah. a bit of that. Let's have a listen.
Caroline's performance for large saxophone ensemble one. It's incredible. <laughs> it sounded incredible. Um, oh, thank you. What did you think when you were listening to it? It wasn't too bad. I sort of thought, yeah. It's interesting to hear how... <laughs> it's funny how one's, one's first impressions... Or first, uh, first, first, first uh, ideas about things are so far from how things turn out. Because, uh, like when I first started singing and playing, alternating between singing and playing, my notion was that it would sound so smooth you would barely be able to tell the difference between the voice and the and the saxophone. And of course, the opposite turns out to be the case usually, you know. And then with the mass producers, my my sort of slightly egotistical notion was that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the players you know that you would just hear the music moving from place to place without noticing that it the different players necessarily but in fact what I hear when I listen to that is that I recognize the, the voices of the of the women even when they're just going ha who he you know and I think oh gosh there's Louise you know there's Sue Sue's in this and um and it's kind of sweet, it's kind of beautiful, you know. It's, that's what music, it's so personal that even when you're in an ensemble, you're, who you are comes through. It's incredibly beautiful. It's very, if the influence, is, is there anybody you were listening to at that time? or was this? Not that sounded like that. The, so I mean, the Steve influence, Reich. Uh, people have said that, I suppose... And, you know, I, I'm not, I was just, especially with that piece, it was because that was the first one I did for that group. It was like, all right, you have 20 saxophones. They're in a circle around the audience and you, you want to move the music around. What can you do? And, and that piece is sort of just a series of ideas of what you can do to make that happen. So in a way, it's quite schematic. You know, and it's complicated diagrams of like, you know, six beats for that person, then two beats for that. And this goes f from right to left, you know, counterclockwise while the, the other pitches go clockwise. And this goes slowly while the others go quickly. You know, it was it was quite um, worked out in a cerebral sort of way. So that bit that we just heard is probably one of the most successful bits and there's other bits that I think oh well the ideas were really interesting but perhaps the way I realized them was didn't really live up to that you know knowing what I was thinking in my head yeah, and and okay. and also you know you just you can't put everything into one thing and then later pieces were more because we'd started to run out of money they couldn't be as as uh, multifarious as that one as as have as many different facets they had to be things that we could learn more quickly so they were mostly looking at one one aspect of the moving or one aspect of the of the playing and we did one piece later on that I really enjoyed which was with Maggie Nichols singing I wrote some words and so this is a circle yes exactly I mean I've worked with her in various contexts but that was one of the most beautiful for me and how I mean just thinking now how did people get to listen to this 
now if they wanted to? Ooh, they go to my website, which is called Mass Crabble, M-A-S-S-K-R-A-A-B for Bravo, E-L. And um, thence, thence they can contact me, and thence they can, if they care to, purchase the CDs that uh, we're listening to or the LP, which has got the Maggie. We Subsequent to this, because I was really interested in the acoustic process, we recorded another two pieces, but they were done on, on vinyl so and on tape so that it was never digitized. Right. And that, that was kind of nice as well. So many influences, many people. I've, just, I've also found out that you were at the beginning of Resonance. Right. Was that, um, uh, in terms of time, was that around the same time as this or...? Resonance 104.4 FM, (laughs) London's art radio station. That was born from the London Musicians Collective, so the reason I was involved with Resonance was because I had been previously a member of the London Musicians Collective, or LMC, and, you know, mostly as a musician, but sometimes involved in organizing a festival here or... Uh, we did a we did a sort of trial run for the radio station for a few weeks at the South Bank at some point. I can't remember what year that was, but you know. But Resonance FM started in two thousand and two. So interestingly, that was so when we I can't remember exactly, but when when we recorded that at Gateway that we just heard, I was pregnant. So it must have been two thousand and one. I guess. And then uh, the LMC sort of transmogrified itself into Resonance FM. And I just had a baby. Okay. And I wanted to sort of find a way of continuing to exist in a, in a sort of integral way that made sense of being a musician who has a baby, you know. So I suggested, and, and it was accepted, that I do a weekly wander about the streets outside with with my baby in in his little push chair and my saxophone and I would be you know just having a walk for half an hour with my my baby and playing the saxophone at the same time and that was broadcast live on Resonance FM once a week or once a fortnight until he was three and by that time I'd had another baby so I started doing it with her so the whole thing lasted about six years, and it was called Taking a Life for a Walk. And that was good fun. And was that recorded? Some of them were. I, have rec- I don't have any recordings okay. with me. On my website, you can listen to a sort of a, a mix of some of those recordings. So also back to street performing. Yes, that's right. In a yes. sense. And being... Um, also, liveness was important to me, that it be out on the streets and on the radio simultaneously live. So there were these two, the single performance that was being perceived by these two completely distinct audiences, which only extremely rarely, I, th- I can remember twice when they overlapped, which was basically people in a car actually one time 
I was over by Waterloo Station <laughs> and this car kind of screeches to a halt next to me and I can hear that I am on the speakers in this car and this guy goes, what the are you doing? You know, he's just like totally... And he, I don't know if he just sought me out because I would sometimes say, oh, you know, I'm now uh, approaching Waterloo Station just because I would talk as well a little bit. I don't know if he sought me out or if by accident he tuned into resonance and then he'd seen me and like, what the heck is going on, you know? That's amazing. <laughs> and then that's a similar thing, but the, the second time it happened, I know the person actually sought me out because it was someone that I knew who'd heard me say I was on this street. And so with his car, he drove until he found me. And then we made some feedback with the speakers in his car because I had, it was all being going through my phone to the resonance studio and then being transmitted. So if when the phone was in the presence of the speaker, you could make feedback. It was good fun. <laughs> I know you've got some recent recordings on your website. Films. Right. Um, the, the recent... What feels recent to me is probably, you know, we've up to sort of 12 years ago, basically. Yeah. I, I worked with Susan Alcorn, who's an amazing pedal steel guitar player from America. And we made a CD together, which I really like, and I love playing with her, but she lives in Baltimore. So I get over to the States only rarely, and she gets over here even more rarely, so it's 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 a while since we've had a chance to play bizarrely i mean maybe i'm maybe there's some psychological thing behind it because the other another person that i really 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 was enjoying collaborating with was annie lewandowski who lived here for a while she was studying here she plays prepared piano accordion and um what's that thing called musical saw and um, so we played together and we made a CD and then she went back to America. And so again, it's it's kind of very, very intermittent, you know, that we even see each other, never mind play together. And I made a recording with Varian Weston. And I record a lot with my partner, John Edwards, although that's mostly for our own interests, you know. Um, and Should then, we listen to one of the recent well, ones? Well, the, the, my favorite recent thing is a group called Chemistry Beats Electricity, and we just played for the first time as a quintet on the in January this year, 2015. So tell me about this while I'm loading it up. Okay. It's um, myself, John Edwards. What you're going to hear is only myself, John Edwards, and Cleveland Watkiss, who sings... But in addition to the three of us, there are two other musicians involved, Mark Saunders and Bebe Wang, who are both percussionists. Unfortunately, when we did the gig, I only recorded this bit and not the bit with the five of us. <laughs> but, but it's the group. I love this so much. It goes so many different and unusual places. And it's, yeah, it's, it's lovely improvising, and I think improvising is becoming more and more important. There you go. Okay, we're going to number, number one. one. Yeah. <laughs> 
So that was a recent... Yeah, that was just a recording, recording. from a gig, so the quality is not marvellous, but it was just, it's just such a great group to play with, and it, one feels that there's just a huge headroom, there's huge potential for, for all kinds of new and, and exciting things to happen with that group, so... And that is part of the future... A future collaboration or it's, performance? Well, hopefully it's an ongoing thing. It's if we if, if we get the gigs, we'll do them, you know. And, and um, yeah, I really, I really think the improvising is like, yeah, it's 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 because we we come from different places. I was thinking about this earlier today, and I don't mean each of us does, but I don't mean that necessarily. I think that that all all of us come from slightly different backgrounds musically to the ones that many improvisers have. Does that make sense? So um, it's yeah. it's got a lot of potential. There you go. Thank you. So Caroline Cravel, thank you very much. And um, you've given your information and people can get hold of yeah. all of this stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hodge. Oh, thank you.